Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our year-end guests are really special, and I'll tell you about them in just a moment. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write in at politicsworldroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the link to our sponsor, Copilot, in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You know, James, we're just a day, uh, we're just a couple days away from the start of a new year. It is a year divisible by four, which means it's a huge election year. You and I have both been around for a long time. I think going into almost every election year, there's a sense that one side has the advantage over the other. Sometimes that changes. But it's rather clear that both sides, that one side may have a few more pluses going for it. This year, I think both parties are in, to coin a phrase from George H.W. Bush, deep doo-doo. The Democrats have an unpopular president. People think he's too old. He's not going to get any younger. Uh, we have really what's a great economy. The so-called uh, misery index at the end of the year was lower than it's been in years. Inflation is coming down. But people don't sense that. People don't feel that. People don't give... Biden or the Democrats, any credit for that. And the Israeli-Gaza war is just going to is going to hurt Biden and hurt Democrats. It divides the party uh, as it does in the Republicans. So therefore, that's the Democratic picture. The Republican picture ain't a whole lot better. You've got uh, a likely nominee who has been indicted four times, 91 counts. There could be a trial, uh, depending on the courts, uh, sometime um, before this summer. Uh, and he could get convicted. Uh, he's got plenty of other, he's got three other potential cases. He's got civil cases and he just, he seems to get crazier for the week. But then you look at the Republican House. I, I've never seen such a clown show. It is unbelievable. They've had, took 15 ballots. We, we know the whole history. And now they got a speaker who has no idea what he's doing. So the Republicans, I think, are going into the year in really bad shape too. The independent parties, yeah, they're doing better than usual. The history is usually they have to, once they have to account for themselves, they don't do as well. I don't see any any sterling candidate out there. I think Robert F. Kennedy is going to, you know, is going to peak right now. So it's just a year, and, and January is going to be the most chaotic month of all. So I, I don't know where this takes us, except, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a royal car crash, the likes of which we haven't seen in a while. Uh, well, it's not much disputing that. It's trying to predict it. What intersection this thing goes up in flames is, is a little more difficult. But I think they're going to have a terrible time getting through the month of January on on the Hill, to say the least. And uh, you know, Iowa is going to going to weed a lot of people out. I suspect with DeSantis being the sort of first to go. That. Maggie Haberman's story in the Times on the DeSantis campaign. It's like anybody that's ever been involved in a campaign, they kind of halfway feel sorry for these people. It's just been one steady sink to the bottom. It, I can't wait to get all the campaign books. But then and you're also correct that I don't know how the, the angst in the country can manifest itself. I will say this in defense of what the Biden theory is. It, it, it's worthy of repeating is that you're already starting to see consumer confidence up. You're already starting to see that the 
recovery's taking hold. And you just wait and see, and Trump's going to be indicted, and this is going to be a lot smoother than any of you naysayers and hand-ringers expect it to be, and it's going to all end up fine. I I feel like I'm obligated to say that is the point, and that there is some, it certainly hadn't reflected itself in the president's approval numbers, but certain underlying economic numbers better. I just don't know, and I'm highly skeptical uh, that the public is open to reconsider this, but in light of Trump's troubles, they may be, and that is pretty clearly the White House view. Well, it's, it, James, isn't it twofold? Number one, if Trump gets convicted, which would be different than the indictments, right. uh, we think. We don't know, but we think. And number two, if Mike Johnson and his merry band of, of crazies in the House screw up so badly uh, that uh, the basic argument is you cannot let these people be in charge, uh, it seems to me that's the path. I don't think the path's going to be Biden. I think the path's going to be that the others, that the alternative right. is so unacceptable. Yeah, I, 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 I feel just obligated to, to take that point of view. And I don't know. They had, I mean, was it 15 ballots to elect Kevin McCarthy? I, I think this is far and away the most unproductive Congress since people can remember. I mean, it went there, they passed like 27 bills, 20 of them were resolutions, you know, congratulating the Marine Corps on 250th birthday or some, something like that. But, you know, it used to be people paid attention to this. I suspect that they might, but they're going to have a hell of a time keeping the government open or anything. And Johnson's going to, he's got more bad stuff coming his way, I promise you. Yeah, and he's got a caucus that is, um, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi had a similar margin, you know, four or five votes. And she was a magician, to be sure, but she can she knew how to put things together. This group of crazies does not want to put things together. Uh, And that makes it hard. I think Mike Johnson is in so far over his head. He's almost the accidental speaker because of their frustration. But I don't know that very many people could lead this band of clowns. You know, it's to paraphrase Bismarck. You know, people don't care how the sausage is made in one sense, but they do care that they're that they have the sausage. Right. And uh, I don't know, it, it, it may be that the country is going to feel the effects of the, the turmoil in the House of Representatives that will break out more than just leadership fights. And boy, that, that, tell you what, that, there's a lot left to go here. And, and these fights are really going to get better. Yeah, they are. You know, James, uh, for the last month or so longer, I, I've been incredibly pessimistic. Uh, I just didn't see any way Biden could win. I still think it's difficult, except what we talked about earlier, a Trump conviction, the House uh, showing its true true colors, and the argument being you can't let this group of clowns be in charge. There's total chaos. And, you know, our guy may not be a day at the beach, but, you know, at least we're going to have more order. I think that's now you know, at about 50, where I thought it was lower before. Uh, I think the Senate, man, the Senate's tough. I mean, if Biden just squeaks through with a narrow victory, I don't see any way the Republican, the Democrats hold the Senate, uh, even though they've got some great candidates in those key races. And I, but I do think that it's probably likely that in a close election, the Democrats win back the House. Yeah, I, uh, 
you know, we say that, but the, the, the data I see is not overly encouraging. In that Wall Street Journal poll, the Democrats were at 41 in the House generic. Right. I mean, it, it, it feels like they should, you know, and they, they, they certainly have a lot of seats up at risk. I mean, your, your instinct says, yeah, they should win the House back, but there's not a lot of evidence that they're in a, any kind of a commanding position. And, you know, in, in 2006, it, you knew that, that, that by this time, you knew the Democrats were poised to have a good year. You did. Even in 2010, you, you, you know, you didn't know for sure, but it, 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 it looked like they were going to have, the Republicans were going to have a good year. And I don't see that kind of conclusive feeling right now that I, I, it, it, it is said, and I, I think I, I agree with it more than I don't, but not by, not with a lot of confidence that the Democrats should run the House back. The Senate will, will be, considerably tougher. Uh, you know, that's Ohio and Montana just headline the difficulty that we have facing us and so just, few. Thank chances. God you got Sherrod Brown and John Tester. Thank yeah, you, the people we, I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I, 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 I yeah, I, I, I don't know, but it, 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 Seems like we have a better shot at the House and the Senate, but there's not much data to support that. Yeah. James, uh, one thing that we haven't talked about, Adam Kinzinger uh, last week raised a new issue, which I didn't think was possible, about Donald Trump. Um, I, uh, what's your take on it? <laughs> well, you know, my take is this, that everything, and it's to take a, a second, but this is my take. We do fact check boxes and we do big, long stories on Trump. And even thus far, we indict him and it, 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 it's political effect on Trump is negligible. All right. I think that mocking him is very important because his supporters have such a deified view of him. And the two things that I'm big on is mocking him and talking about how he betrayed us. There's a big story in the Times today about all the China stuff and buried in there is how much that his policies actually hurt consumers. You, you're not, the way to get it, Trump, is to say, we believed you. When you said you were gonna take on China, we, we, we believed you. Don't criticize how they got there try to make them consider whether or not they want to stay there. And this stink story. The stink it, story is that he has body odor. But yes, it, uh, that, that is a story. And, and Adam, you know, this is a trained, militarily trained guy. Other people have said that. I think that we should have like airplanes flying banners over his, his rallies. I think people would show up with a close pen on their nose. Uh, I think that, you know, why does he stink so much? What are, go to the Mayo Clinic and look at possible causes of body odor. They're mm -hmm. multitudinous. We need to know because it could, sometimes body odor can, it, it can certainly speak to incontinence, which is all possible in somebody that age, but it can speak to other underlying serious health issues. So I, I think we need to get a good sniff at this guy. And I think we should publicize the fact that people claim that he stinks. 
He smells bad. He's smelly. And I bet you there's some truth to it. And like any good detective, we, we got to find the origin of this bad smell. I, it, it depends, as we like to say. It could be leaks. You know what I mean? James, I have, I have had interviews with his nine predecessors. I was never able to get an interview with Trump. And now maybe I'm thankful. Well, you should go. Anytime you're around him, I, we used to do as kids. We'd put a close tin you know, on our nose. And we know Rudy has a propensity for flatulence, uh, uh, public flatulence, multiple occasions of public flatulence. I, I don't think it's it's contagious, but maybe, you know, he caught uh, COVID from Trump. So maybe, maybe Trump caught excessive flatulence from Rudy. I don't know, but these are questions that have to be posed. And we cannot say this is beneath us because when it comes to keeping Trump out the White House. Like Michelle Obama says, when they go low, we go high. No, when they go low, we go lower. <laughs> okay? All I, right. All yeah, right. Let's, I everybody, to bring out. When I was a kid, I got no out, problem with that. Bring out your smell test. James, yes, sir. Yeah. That's an important issue. Very important let, issue. Let me turn to one more subject, the National Football League. We are both huge fans. I'll tell you, um, a month ago, maybe five, six weeks ago, Someone said to me, uh, you know, who, who do you think is going to win? I said, I, I think the Chiefs are strong. I think they got a great coach, great quarterback, great tight end, good defense. Uh, I think they're very likely to repeat. Then the Eagles beat them good. And I thought, boy, the Eagles, this is, they were run-ups last year. This is their year, right? You know, right. they're going to do it. And I was convinced by early December it's going to be the Eagles. Then the Cowboys whomped them. I thought, I don't really think the Cowboys, you know, but, you know, who knows? Um and then it suddenly looked like it's got to be the 49ers. I mean, they've got this great young coach. He's brought him back. And last Sunday, they get just stomped by the Ravens, who've got the best record in football. So as of today, being the front runner that I am, I'm going to say the Ravens. But I got to tell you, it's been one hell of a season. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I don't know. I've got to check. I doubt if it's coming. I don't know if even Bengals can in, get in there or Burke can get back. Uh, Buffalo, you know, it just uh, somebody gets hot in the playoffs and it can make a difference. I tell you, a team, I, I'm getting a little more impressed with it, but kind of hard to get to say it, but Cleveland. Yes, which, and, with, 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 a, with a what, 38 year old quarterback? Yeah. Oh, you know. Hey, you know, that's a, that's had, a, you know, we had a cheer for Cleveland. We all people. I, I'm kind of, honestly, the Saints ain't good. They, they, they're not going to make it for sure. And I got to pull for somebody. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, if Joe Burrow's not in there, I don't really have a team or kind of jump ball. And I'm trending toward Cleveland a little bit. Just, it's just a team to pull for. Well, besides being a front runner, I like the Ravens for a couple of reasons. Uh, and number one, I like Baltimore. But secondly, I think their coach is the good hardball. And thirdly, I think Lamar Jackson is the MVP. He, he is just, he's kind of, he, he resisted contract. He had a long for long, right. but he's having, he's having one hell of a year and he's just one great quarterback. You know, so, we ought to ask Feinstein because he's a student on race and sports and yeah. extensively. I've always wondered if, Lamar Jackson is better than the press gives him credit for. I mean, I got I know that's a hard thing to prove, but you know he's mobile in the pocket, and yeah. I, I mean, I do think there's a certain descriptions that go to black quarterbacks that are not 
generally attributable to, to white quarterbacks. But I, I, I'm just asking a question. I don't really know the answer to that. But, you know, I think you're right. And Mahomes is the exception for some reason. Uh, I don't yeah. think I don't think he gets that. But I think Lamar Jackson, listen, anybody who questions how great Lamar Jackson is, just go ask that San Francisco defense. Uh, I think I think they can tell you how great Lamar Jackson that is. That guy can beat you in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you right now, you know, you're going to say I'm a homer. The coming up person that reminds me of Lamar Jackson is the LSU guy. <laughs> I mean, he's mobile like that. He can throw. He can run. He's fast. And he's, if anything, he's he's bigger than Jackson. But that kind of quarterback with that, and of course, you know, Mahomes also being that. But Lamar Jackson got so many ways to beat you. And I, I'm never going to put say somebody's going to beat Lamar Jackson, but that style of quarterback is uh, is Jane Daniels. I, I promise to the Heisman. There's talking. only there's only one bit of bad news for Daniels. He's so good, he might be drafted by the Washington Football Team. Oh, <laughs> Saints. <laughs> you know they got a they got a new owner, and uh, we'll see. Can't be any worse than the old one. Can they got a new coach? No, they 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 clearly. Up, I've never met. Mr. Harris don't know anything about him, but it's a clear upgrade from Dan Snyder. Because funny hey. anything's upgrade from that asshole. Jesus. All right, good. We'll watch it. Uh, it's going to be a great playoff. Go Browns! I like. I tell you one thing I like about the Browns. I love their uniforms and I love their helmet. The only uni- f- football uniform I like better than the Browns is Penn State. Yeah, well, I love that too, and I love Cleveland. I mean, Cleveland's a city that needs something like that. I mean, it really right. is. It's it's gotten right, a little right. you know, better. They, they, I, I, I'm not sure what I think of their owner. Their owner isn't one of the more oh Haslam. He's a guys, but yeah, you know, a lot of money. They, you know, but uh, yeah, I kind yeah. of pull for you know Dallas. Don't need it. They don't need. They got enough. They, you know, James, they haven't won anything in what a quarter century almost. You know, the big rap on them and Miami beat them that they can't win on the road. And, uh, you know, it's this, that. And it's, I, I, but I, you got to say one thing about the Cowboys. They're compelling. I mean, you always kind of want to watch yeah. them for whatever reason. Jerry Jones is something. They have a certain, the uniform, the, I don't know what. And, I think I think one problem they have is Jerry Jones is a fascinating character, but he engages too much and decision-making, and he is not a decision-maker. The teams that really do well over the long period of time, the Patriots, the Steelers, Steelers. you know, they... Oh, they wait, watch out for the Steelers. They had a big win the other day, yeah. I mean, watch out, and, and uh, you know, the Rooney's the best, most stable owners in the whole goddamn NFL. I think they've had three coaches in the last 50 years. And I, they have not had many. Uh-huh. And, you know, they talk about the Rooney rule. Well, he practices what they practice, what they preach. You know, yeah. they got. The, yeah. The, the Rooney rule is the one that says that you have to give uh, a, a black coach serious consideration, which most teams. Well, they give serious consideration. They are a black coach. They've been there forever. Yeah. They're a pretty goddamn good coach. <laughs> it sure as hell is. All right, we'll be back with more NFL. James, there are eight or ten teams that could win this whole thing. And uh, that's just... All right. You know, first of all, the research has... I mean, like in the last six months, has just been pouring in as to how beneficial exercise is. 
and, and it, 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 it's, you know, I think back some years ago, they, it made sense. They thought it was helpful. You know, it was Dr. Cooper in Dallas kind of started this and it became like a fad. And now it's just overwhelming. And anything that you can do to promote your self-exercise is going to help. And, and you know, people think they can do it alone. Maybe you can, but like anything else, if you got a partner in it, it makes it a lot easier and a lot better and a lot more fun. And the, the, the now the exercise is just proven beyond any doubt to be beneficial. So join us in taking your fitness to the next level with Copilot, the personalized fitness solution. Every individual is unique, so your fitness journey should be too. Copilot's app links you with an affordable, real-life fitness coach who customizes workouts tailored to your individual needs and goals. Forget fitness fads, work out anywhere, anytime, and make fitness a seamless part of your lifestyle with Copilot. The Copilot app sets you up for success with completely personalized workouts with step-by-step -step guidance from your real-life expert Copilot coach. Your coach will tailor workout plans to be enjoyable and effective with regular progress check-ins, support, and guidance. Together, you'll continuously update and adapt every workout to your goals, schedule, and injuries. Let me tell you, the human connection and accountability is key. Having someone to guide and challenge has always been the best way to keep any of us on track. It makes it a lot harder to slack off when you know you're going to have to answer to your coach. Copilot is great for anyone of any age with workout programs designed around your specific lifestyle. So you can work out at your convenience with or without a gym. In my case, without usually, which is why I like it these days. I was a little nervous starting out, but a coach can put you at ease with his knowledge and expertise. And a key focus for me is mobility, endurance, and balance. And I'm already feeling much looser with more energy. Now, I, it'll take me a while to catch up with James on the endurance front since his coach has taken him his run into the next level. And he's, of course, a great deal younger than I am. But so far, I haven't missed a workout because they're planned around my commitments. So I'd love for you to follow the lead and get fit and feel fabulous. Give Copilot a try to find out why Copilot was listed by Forbes as the top-rated personal trainer app of 2023. Head to mycopilot.com slash roarroom and get a 14-day free trial and 20% off your first month of personalized fitness with your own personal trainer if you sign up before February 1st. That's mycopilot.com slash roarroom to get a free 14-day trial and 20% off your first month. Sign up for the new year and let Copilot help you reach your fitness goals you also can find the link in our show notes. You know, James, this is just every Sunday afternoon, we have a fascinating conversation with eight or 10 of the most interesting people in the country. And we jealously guard that, uh, that prerogative. We don't let you know, any listener join us or anybody. We've had a number of people who've asked, but today we're going to, share with you uh, two or three of our most special uh, people on that Sunday call. Uh, one is Pam Carlin, 
Stanford law professor, former assistant attorney general, foremost expert on voting rights and civil rights. And also Roger Altman is going to be with us, uh, who is the founder of the leading Wall Street investment firm Evercore, former deputy treasury secretary and a leading economic advisor to top Democrats. I hope we'll be joined later by by George Stevens. Pam, let me start with you. And let's talk about 2023 very briefly, and then we can move on to 2024, which is more which is more interesting. I can't remember a year, Pam, where the legal profession, the legal community was so challenged as it is this year. Four indictments of a former president, uh, huge ethical charges against Supreme Court justices, uh, big cases coming up, uh, you know, before the court dealing with American politics. Man, it was it was really a, an incredibly important year, even though we haven't seen the outcomes yet. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's hard to think of a broader range of cases that go to just the fundamental nature of our democracy. Um, so, you know, we have all of the cases coming out of January 6th, plus the Trump indictments, which are both about January 6th and about his uh, keeping of classified documents. We have a major abortion case at the Supreme Court again. Uh, the Supreme Court is being asked to take a case on whether uh, former President Trump is uh, immune from prosecution altogether. Uh, just yesterday, the Colorado Supreme Court held that he couldn't be put on the ballot in Colorado because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We have cases challenging the very nature of uh, social media platforms. Boy, this has been this has been an amazing year. And as you know, none of none of the cases has been finally decided yet, and a lot of them won't be until June. Boy, that's for sure. And we'll talk about all of those, um, and, and, you know, as we move to twenty twenty four. Roger, much of this year was dominated by you know, fears of inflation and the president, despite record job numbers, um, was was just, uh, you know, terrible poll ratings. Uh, Ukraine is um, is still in a messy war with Russia with no end in sight. And now we have uh, Israel uh, and Hamas in Gaza. It's been a pretty tough year for Democrats, hasn't it? Yes, but it could have been a lot worse. And the critical question, of course, is how the economy does next year and how voters view the economy. And I think this, what's surprising is how this year is ending up, namely quite well. Uh, and I'm just talking about the U.S. economy and how improbable an ending like this and a pretty good outlook for 2024 would have, been, would have seemed a year ago. So we've had in the past 18 or 19 months, the most rapid tightening of monetary policy in 40 years in an effort to fight this inflation crisis. Uh, and inflation has proved stubborn uh, as it always does in terms of coming down, but finally it is. And most would have thought at the beginning of this year, that we would be in recession now or right around that. And instead, the economy has grown really quite strongly. The last quarter, the third quarter of 2023, was a remarkable 4.9% real growth. Um, the unemployment rate has remained quite low. It's currently 37 And 
there's no sign of recessionary conditions at all. And of course, the stock market is hitting all-time highs each of the last six or eight days. It's booming. And, and Roger, you know, there was a lot of talk earlier about how unlikely the so-called soft landing was, which was namely inflation comes down to a manageable level without uh, tossing us into a recession or significantly higher unemployment. That soft landing now seems likely, doesn't it? Now it's the consensus. Uh, not only does it seem likely, it's the consensus. And uh, the, the so-called Goldilocks scenario, which is you cure inflation without uh, rising unemployment and without going into negative growth, seems to be happening right now. Roger, uh, does the fairly much maligned Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell deserve a revisit, deserve a, you know, a more, more credit than he has been given most of this year by the Larry Summers of the world? Well, I think it's a little too soon to judge. But if they do have the soft landing. Yes, then I think he will deserve a lot of credit. In fact, it'll be considered a rather miraculous outcome. And that's really quite the right word because historically you've never had inflation hit 9% or higher, which it did this time, and then bring it down, in this case, to the Fed's goal of 2%, without um, a hard landing, yeah. which means a lot more unemployment, um, a lot of business failures, and an economy that declines, and that doesn't just hold, it, hold its own, but declines. And so, uh, and so Powell, if that happens, Will, have, will be seen as some sort of magician, but we have to wait a little bit. Okay. One of our other Zoom partners, I believe George Stevens has joined us. George, you're there? I'm here. Good. George is an Academy Award winning director, we can, and playwright. And he just came back from a Hollywood celebration of the 70th anniversary of his father's classic movie, Shane. Uh, George, uh, 2023, uh, what kind of a year was it in the entertainment field? There was no shame, I don't think, but uh, how, how would you assess it? Just looking back and then we'll look forward later. Well, it was just a, a tumultuous year uh, for the movie business, the, you know, the media business, if you will, with the strike that uh, put people out of work stalled the the production companies and uh, and then this upheaval you know that's happening uh, of whether theaters are going to continue to be the large market uh, that we have always known them to be um, and will resume their practice of going frequently to movie theaters to watch movies Pam what chance do you think how would you assess the prospects that Donald Trump can win uh, these cases or one or two of these cases that are going before the Supreme Court? So the case that I'm most confident, and obviously you should never be super confident about this, but the case I'm most confident about is I do not think at the end of the day the Supreme Court will hold that he's immune from all prosecution for the acts he engaged in on January 6th. Um, it seems to me, you know, that the court is going to read the impeachment clause not as saying that you have to be first convicted 
before you can be tried once you leave office. Um, and, you know, no court has ever held that the president is immune from criminal prosecution once he leaves office. So that's the case I, I think I would be most confident that the Supreme Court is going to uh, rule against uh, President, ex former President Trump. Um, there's a question about one of the charges in the January 6th indictment. They've taken another case that involves actually one of the low-level people who was at the Capitol that day. And the question there is how to construe the federal statute that deals with uh, interference of official proceedings. So it's possible the Supreme Court will decide that case uh, in a way that prevents uh, Trump from being tried on all four of the charges in that case. Um, and now, of course, you've got the Colorado Supreme Court holding that Section 3 of the Constitution, which was a provision that was of the 14th Amendment, which is a provision that was put in place right after the Civil War to make sure that Jefferson Davis and folks like him would never be president of the United States. Um, you know, now that the Colorado court has held that he should be knocked off the primary ballot in Colorado because he's not eligible to be president since he has engaged in an insurrection against the United States, my guess is four members of the Supreme Court will want to take that case. Uh, and boy, it's anybody's guess what the court does. You know, this is a provision of the federal constitution that literally hasn't been interpreted since about 1870. Wow. Uh, James. So, Dean, I want to talk about the Mifepristone case. And if you could just tell us basically what is Mifepristone, what is the issue before the court, and what options does the court have to decide this, and how will this affect people in everyday life? Sure. So Mifepristone is one of the two drugs that are used in what are called medical abortions. So there, there basically are two kinds of abortions. There are uh, medical abortions, which involve taking a pill that essentially causes a miscarriage. And then there are what are sometimes referred to as surgical abortions, which involve, you know, um, uh, right. using some kind of surgery to re remove the right. embryo or the fetus. Um, and the, the FDA, which is the federal agency that's responsible for approving drugs, approved mifepristone for this use in the early 2000s um, for very early abortions. It later um, increase the number of weeks that you can safely take mefepristone and, and the other drug in order to uh, cause an abortion. Um, and then uh, in, in, more recently than that, the government changed the rules on whether you have to go to a doctor to get the pills. It used to be that women who wanted to have medical abortions had to visit a doctor essentially three times. And now, although the drug's still a prescription drug, you can have your doctor prescribe it over the phone, you can go to a pharmacy and pick it up, and you can order it from a mail pharma a, a pharmacy by mail. So a bunch of very anti-abortion doctors in Texas got together, created an organization called the uh, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, uh, and filed a lawsuit challenging the FDA's approval of mifepristone, challenging the FDA's approval of generic mifepristone, challenging the FDA's uh, rule that you didn't have to go physically to the doctor to get the mifepristone. And they, they filed it in Amarillo, Texas, in front of a judge who is a very right-wing judge, and he gave them everything they were looking for. He 
said, you, you know, the federal government has to take mefepristone off the market. It can't be prescribed anymore by mail and the like. Went up to the Fifth Circuit, very conservative court of appeals. And that court of appeals said, well, we're not going to take all mefepristone off the market, but we're going to reject the government's, the FDA's approval of um, uh, uh, getting the drugs by mail or getting the drugs by phone which means you got to go to the doctor, which means, of course, if you live in a state where abortion's illegal, it's kind of game over. Uh, and the Supreme Court stayed that ruling and has agreed to hear the underlying case on an appeal uh, by the federal government. The, the way the court is, in, to my mind, likely to decide this case is not even to reach the merits. What they're going to hold is that the doctors who brought this lawsuit had no right to bring the lawsuit in the first place. And the reason for that is, let me tell you, you know, you remember all those old Rube Goldberg things where, you know, you hit a ball over here and it causes something over here. And then that causes something on, in another room and that causes something else. And there's just right, this right, long, right. long chain. Remember proximate that? Proximate cause. Yeah. Well, right. this is like beyond proximate cause, because here's the argument that the doctors make as to why they should be allowed to bring this lawsuit. They're against abortions. And women who take mifepristone might have some complication. And those women might show up in an emergency room at which this doctor might be working at the time. And if the doctor's working there and the mifepristone has caused an incomplete abortion, they might have to finish the process. And this would make them very unhappy. And that's what they claim their injury is. That is, they're not, they're not required to prescribe mifepristone for anybody. They're not required to support mifepristone in any way, but they say, if we have to, at some point in our lives, perform some kind of procedure that we have a moral objection to because some woman took mifepristone, that's how we're injured. And that's just not how the law works. So, so to put words in your mouth, this could be a standing issue, it could just be decided yeah, that you just yeah. don't, if we don't have to hear exactly. this, you have, you have no, you're not a party to this. Yeah, you, you have no standing to challenge this. And by the way, you also waited way too long. And the interesting thing is the Supreme Court took the case that the government, the federal government brought uh, to it, which says, you know, our approval of mifepristone and our approval of the medic, of, of the male uh, you know, mailing mifepristone is perfectly okay. Um, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, which really should be called like the Alliance for Hypocritical Medicine, I think, but that's that's another <laughs> thing, is, you know, those, those folks also wanted to appeal uh, the finding that they had waited too long to bring some of these challenges. And the, the Supreme Court didn't take that. Now, there's something lurking in the background of all of this that's worth just kind of highlighting for a moment. And that is, it, you remember the the Comstock Act? Anthony Comstock was this Anthony Comstock. Yeah, he was this 19th century moral crusader. Right. And the Comstock Act says that you can't send anything. Originally, it said you couldn't send any immoral uh, material through the mail, and that meant you couldn't send like dirty books through the mail. You couldn't send contraceptives through the mail, and you couldn't send uh, anything that causes abortion through the mail. Um, that provision about abortion is still on the books from the 1870s. Um, the Postal Service has taken the position and the Justice Department has taken the position that the Comstock Act really only forbids sending uh, material through the mails that will cause an abortion if you do it knowing that the abortion is an illegal abortion. 
Um, and so there's a recent opinion in December of last year from the uh, uh, Office of Legal Counsel, which is the part of the Justice Department that gives legal advice to the executive branch, saying the Comstock Act does not prohibit the mailing of mifepristone. Um, but that's kind of lurking out there as a possibility. Um, and, you know, a lot of uh, anti-abortion groups are suggesting that if Donald Trump becomes president, he should start enforcing the Comstock Act by going after the pharmacies that mail uh, that mail uh, mifepristone to folks, even in states where abortion is legal. I would guess this is a case that's going to make some of those justices squirm. But let me ask, yeah. Roger Altman, you're still with us? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, basically, if the economy goes the way you suggested, it seems to be the consensus right now. We have probably the, the, the strongest in every sense economy in the major industrialized world, don't we? Yes. No two ways about that. Now, you have to put China in context because China's growth rate still is higher than the U.S. growth rate, but China's slowing faces huge demographic challenges, has some big financial problems, for example, in its real estate sector, and is seen as weakening to a degree that we aren't, even though you would see China's growth rate at the moment somewhere probably around 3%, 3% plus, are slightly less than that. But the U.S. economy, by and large, is doing quite a bit better than China right now. Chinese youth unemployment rate, for example, is over 20%. Well, would you, uh, James, go ahead. You, you, you ask Roger a question. So, so Roger, let's just say our friend consensus, and we'll just leave it at that. Consensus a year ago completely missed what was going on in the U.S. economy. What is the thing that consensus didn't account for last December? Because it, it, it has exceeded anybody's expectation. I, that's a very good question. I think the history books probably will eventually say that at this moment, right, right now, December 2023, nobody yet fully understood the economic impacts of the pandemic and that it was the pandemic's unique impacts that were not understood at various stages here. Let me be uh, specific. In my view, the inflation crisis we've had, the certain inflation, was almost entirely caused by the pandemic. We could have a long talk about that. But what seems to have kept the economy going uh, more strongly than anyone thought is partly the excess savings that were created by the pandemic as consumers continue to have pretty good balances for spending. And partly the supply chain problems that initially the pandemic caused and which contributed to inflation and now as they're easing it's contributing to declining inflation and a more stable economic environment so i think 10 years from now people are going to look back and say what was unique about 2020 2020 2021 2022 2023 was the historically unprecedented impacts of the pandemic. And that what's, what's occurring right now in terms of much more stability than was thought are some continued back-end impacts of that. 
George Stevens, uh, what are you looking for in uh, the entertainment world in 2024? I, I, I think that it, it, it's going to come together uh, slowly. Um, there, the studios are going to have to sort out. They're at war with streaming, uh, but you begin to see signs that their people are now uh, renting their films to Netflix, which they weren't before, which gives the studios a broader outlook. And uh, and they're simply going to have to make adjustments in order to uh, you know to survive and keep production uh, going in a way that's uh, you know going to take us in a positive way into the future. George, you are a voter uh, in the Academy Awards, so um, I, I, I'm sure I suspect you haven't cast your vote yet. You have time, but from what you instinctively see right now. What's your best guess for best picture? Well, they're going to break your heart, Al. It's not going to be Barbie. It's going to be Oppenheimer. Uh, not Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I loved Oppenheimer, George. I really loved Oppenheimer. Tell, you know, you were, um, do, you, do you mind relating the story that Christopher Nolan told you the other day about how they picked pick the venue for Oppenheimer? Well, it, 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 this is, it's kind of a nice story, this event, which I'll capsule and capsule. Um, uh, my father made this film called Shane 70 years ago, and I have been involved in film preservation in many fronts, but also <clears throat> caring after this film. And we have the George Stevens Lecture at the Motion Picture Academy uh, in Hollywood, that was suspended during COVID. Now the Academy has its new museum with a grand uh, 960 seat theater, beautiful red theater, the best projection in the world. And so a week ago, Sunday night, um, I had the pleasure of introducing Christopher Nolan to do the George Stevens lecture, followed by the screening of Shane on its 70th anniversary. And you think about uh, a crowd, it was a sold out crowd, many young people, uh, of seeing a film on this grand screen uh, 70 years after it was made, and to have it interpreted by uh, the person I think is the most inventive and uh, intellectually interesting filmmaker in the United States today. And to hear him talk about how he saw in Shane uh, when he was making The Dark Knight, his Batman picture, that, that he studied the evil in Shane and the ethical framework of George Stevens' treatment of evil. Um, it's just as taking the film to such a, not a higher level, but just a great level. Um, and this audience was just enchanted by the film. So it was a really nice story for <clears throat> me, having been involved in this picture since when I got out of high school and my father gave, father gave, gave me two jobs, um, I, uh, one of which was to read the books that came from Paramount Pictures 
and I read this small Jack Schaefer, Schaefer novel and took it to my father and told him that I thought he ought to read it. And he said, why don't you tell me the story? And the next summer we were in Wyoming making Shane. Well, so, so Dean Collin, before I let you go, I got a friend of mine, no, very close friend of mine, is in a heavily regulated business. And I said, man, this Chevron deference case, you better watch this. And could you explain to me and us what Chevron deference is and why? I, am I wrong in thinking the case before the Supreme Court right now could have a so you, you froze up on my I, my screen, James, but I think you're asking me, you know, what what about the Chevron deference case? Is there what is the what is Chevron deference and what is the case before the court? Sure. So Chevron deference, it's called Chevron deference, not because it has anything to do with gasoline, but because the case where the court announced the uh, decision was a case called National Resources Defense Council against Chevron. Uh, which was a case in the 1980s. And basically what the case says is, look, we've got all these administrative agencies out there, you know, the, ranging from the SEC to the FDA to a whole bunch of long initials of, uh, you know, agencies you never heard of. And these agencies all have statutes that uh, give them power to do various stuff, to regulate various parts of the economy, to regulate things for safety reasons or for health reasons or environmental reasons or economic reasons or whatever. And sometimes the statutes aren't entirely clear on exactly what they mean, you know, because Congress can write the statute in a broad way or it can be an old statute. And now we have a new problem that we didn't know we had. You know, so global warming, a lot of the environmental statutes were written in the 70s before we kind of knew about global warming or the like. So what the court said in the Chevron case is, look, um, when a statute's not entirely clear, courts should defer to what the agency thinks its statute means. So in other words, we give to the expert agency the right to sort of say, here's what we think the statute means and here's how we're gonna apply it. Um, and it's a really important doctrine for enabling agency expertise in all sorts of scientific or economic policy or health related areas, right? As opposed to a bunch of generalist judges saying, well, we can read the words of the statute and we can decide what it means ourselves. Um, and the court has been getting more and more hostile to Chevron deference. There are a number of justices on the court who are kind of hostile to the entire New Deal, you know, expert agencies regulating the economy, uh, Congress giving to these agencies the power to write a lot of regulations and the like. Um, and this year, the court has finally taken a case after several years of kind of hinting at this. Uh, in which they say, should we overrule Chevron? And the case that's in front of the court actually just involves the question of whether um, various fishing boats should have to pay for the inspectors who are on the fishing boat to make sure that it's complying with uh, with federal regulations. And the agency that's involved, which is a fisheries commission, said, yeah, they should, because uh, we read the statute, which says, you know, you have to you have to have these people on board as meaning you need to pay for them. And the Supreme Court is going to decide, should we just get rid of Chevron deference altogether, which means that uh, if you get rid of Chevron deference, the judges will decide what the statute means without really putting a thumb on the scale in favor of what the expert agency thinks. Thank you. That's a, expected a very clear and understanded explanation. I expected and received no less. Yeah, Thank and you. it's Thank a you, big Dave. deal. Yeah. We, uh, we have to wrap this up, but Roger, let me, you follow everything. You're hey, Albert, may I ask George a question? You may. 
Go ahead, Roger. George, you seem absolutely certain that Oppenheimer will win Best Picture, but the uh, the date of, of for the award is th is three months or plus from now. What would be a dark horse? A dark horse. A dark horse would be Barbie. A dark horse would be um, uh, the Maestro, the Leonard Bernstein picture. Um, I, I would say those would be the two runner-ups. And not Killers of the Flower Moon. I don't think so. I, I think it's admired, but at three hours and 30 minutes, I think it it sort of uh, put off the... Progressively kind of, less fired. Yeah. <laughs> How long was yes. your dad's? Uh, how long was Shane, or how long was Giant, uh, George? I mean, just sort of made what might seem a diminishing remark about Martin Scorsese, my good friend. I have to admit that my father's Giant was three hours and twenty minutes, <laughs> and has <laughs> stood the test of time it handily. Sure it sure has. Uh, well, Roger, let me ask you one question before we go, unless James has one more. Uh, your expertise is obviously the economy and finance, but you follow foreign policy, too, and talk to a lot of people. Um, do you have any cause for optimism either on the Israeli-Hamas war or on Ukraine-Russia in 2024? Well, I do think, I think I'm pretty current on this, at least today, Wednesday, that the package being so heavily negotiated on the Hill, which would provide an additional tranche of support for Ukraine, for Israel, for Taiwan, and which would restructure America, I think package is probably going to happen in January. Mm -hmm. Parenthetically, that would be another remarkable legislative achievement for Biden. Guys, uh, you've been you've been wonderful. I wish we could go on for another hour, but we're having a little bit of... Uh, problems here with connections. So thank you all. Pam, George, Roger, thank you. Oh, my, my, my pleasure. I wish we had, I wish we had some better news. <laughs> it's, it's starting to, it's starting to wear even on me. And, you know, I'm like a total Hubert Humphrey optimist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, Roger had some good news and George. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if I have to, if I have to, you know, take all of my money and run to a country we have no extradition treaty with, I'll have more. <laughs> yeah, we, we kind of like getting out of Germany in 1938, where at least the economy's good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, Roger's there seeing that the trains will run on time. Yeah. Yes, yes. All right, James, we're going to take just a few listener questions for the end of the year. But this is, a, this is a good one. Valerie in Comac, Long Island, New York, says if presidential immunity were real, as Trump claims for everything, for a president's crimes, why would we need presidential impeachment? It seemed to me that the immunity would negate the necessity for impeachment. Uh, I, I, I think she's probably wrong in that logic, but it sure as hell makes 
political yeah. sense when you look at it. Yeah, I, I don't think impeachment is a separate political process. It does right. not, but 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 it, it is. And his arguments are specious. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. But they 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 just throw in everything trying to get him to January the twentieth, twenty twenty five. That's yep. strategy. Yep. Yep. And their biggest. may let him get there. That's a that's really a big a big issue. I I tell you what. I think the Colorado case. I have no. This is just intuition. I think the Colorado case is a real break for Jack Smith. In that, I think the Supreme Court is going to reject the Colorado Supreme Court saying that uh, that uh, Trump can't be on the ballot. Uh, right. And I think it then. I think it makes it a, maybe a little bit easier, or a little bit harder for them to be a total Trump court. Uh, you know, maybe that's just wishful thinking, but I think I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. I, yeah. in, in the Michigan court today, uh, whenever it's posted on, on today is Wednesday, I guess on Wednesday this Wednesday morning rule that Trump could stay on about in Michigan, and that's a Democratic court. Yeah, so, so the, I, the I mean, courts definitely gonna have to take this, take it and and, and rule for Trump on that. And, uh, yeah, and um, I, you know that's. That's one I, I, you know, it's the Jack Smith one is the um, is the big enchilada. That's right. the one that really matters. And you're right, what Trump and and also some of those that three judge panel. Uh, what Trump wants to do is to, as you say, prolong this as long as he can, and not go to trial. Uh, you know, before the fall. And uh, you know, if he wins the election, he'll get away with it. They won't get away with Georgia, so what they do there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's. Um, it's it it really would be kind of I mean no no we never again can say that no man is above the law if that happens. Joe in Dobbs Ferry, New York says, Do you think Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss will sue Trump as well? Those were the two uh, Atlanta election poll workers who uh Rudy Giuliani uh just just I mean slurred and uh, lied about and defamed, and uh, they were awarded 148 million dollars because it was so bad. Of course, Rudy doesn't have 148 million dollars. My guess is it's going to be harder to sue Trump in this case because Rudy made direct charges against them. I'm not sure Trump said the whole thing was crooked. I'm not sure he directed it against them. But you know, there's a larger point here. Election workers are critical to a functioning democracy, and what happened to those two women? is an absolute disgrace. And there are right-wingers now who are saying, we're going to get those types of people again. We're going to harass in 2024. And what that is, is quite simply uh, a threat to American democracy. So in the, in the Giuliani case, in the judgment, understand that the attorneys representing uh, Ms. Marsh and Ms. Freeman are like world-class lawyers. The very best. Yeah, the very best. And I would have to, and Dean Carl in Stanford Law School would have to validate this, but if I recall, the, an intentional tort is not dischargeable in bankruptcy. A negligent tort is. Mm -hmm. so if, I, if, if I, it's my understanding, and, and boy, I, I, I have a, a real lawyer get a confirmation on this, but when you, and so he's declared bankruptcy. So all of his assets are going to go into a pool and what they used to call a referee. I don't know if they still call it that, but a bankruptcy referee. And he'll allocate it and say, everybody will get 
20 cents on a dollar, 10 cents on a dollar, whatever. But there's certain things that are not dischargeable. And I think that this is an intentional tort, and they are going to pound his ass, whatever he's got, whatever piece of furniture, whatever he has, they are going to chase him down to the ends of the earth. And he better not try to hide any of these assets because these sons of bitches are after him. And his lawyer better tell him, don't don't fool with these people, man. And you because they, they they might have a a, a a a claim that you can't get rid of. I, I, yeah. I don't know that, but we'll we'll check that and talk about something next week. James, we're gonna take a couple more because they're good ones. Bill in Daytona Beach says, Yeah, is it too cynical to think that the original attack on Israel and the disproportionate Israeli response is an effort by both Hamas and Netanyahu to create such devastation and pain as to ensure their own survival in the future. Wow. So I, I nothing I would put past Hamas. There's very, very little I would put past Netanyahu. But I, I don't. I, I, I don't. There's a, a lot. And there's a whole thing that Netanyahu allowed this to happen for his political future. I, I, I at some level, I just don't buy that. Yeah. I, I think he knows he's an old man. His reputation is shattered. He's going to try to hang on to the extent that he can and stay out of jail. And this this whole thing is just, is just my view. It's not going terribly well. And. You know, the United States, I think the United States needs to be a little more assertive here because our reputation will get a drug in this, too. Oh, and what it's doing to us internally, too, James. You know, uh, Bill, I think you're, I actually think you have a point about Hamas. Uh, Hamas looked and they saw that the Israelis were about to maybe cut a deal with the Saudis and the UAE, and they were going to freeze the Palestinians out of everything. Uh, and that the that the die was cast. They wouldn't. That they, at some point the, they would crack down on the on uh, Gutter giving them assistance. That's at least the way they calculate. And they thought, no, let's go big. Well, yeah. Was, go ahead, James. No, I, I'm, I'm going to complete what you said. And the idea was it was so smart. The Israelis, the Saudis, all these people that you know, the Abraham Accords, the, the Jared Kushner thing hard to convince me that there wasn't money being passed around, but that's my suspicion, not my knowledge. And they would cut the Palestinians totally out the deal. Yeah, totally. They were like, they didn't exist. Yeah. And, you know, when you tell stateless people that they don't exist, they, they don't take to it very kindly. No, that's and, right. And what the I think what the smarter, I hate to call them that, but they are smarter Gaza uh, leader types realized is that most of the population in Saudi Arabia, UAE, and any other Arab state is much more sympathetic to the Palestinians. And so they realize, and I think that I, I, the reason that the Saudis and others have had to pull back and reassess is because of uh, what happened on October 7th and the Israeli response. On Netanyahu, I agree. I don't think that he, you know, was complicit in allowing it to happen. I don't think he wanted it to happen. He was complicit in allowing it to happen, but it oh, wasn't, done. It wasn't done. It wasn't done for, right. for his own survival. However, 
I think that he wants to prolong this war and intensify this war as much as possible in the hopes that that might rescue him from what he's got poll ratings right now that are worse than, uh, you know, any serial killer in America's ever had. I mean, they're just awful. And uh, there was a really, really good piece of the Times the other day, and our friend Seth Waxman is over, has been over there and kind of confirmed it, that uh, huge changes in Israel. This has been a seminal event. Uh, a lot of things are happening, some good, some maybe not so good. The Orthodox are beginning to realize they better be part of the country and the military, some of them at least. And uh, But Netanyahu is as unpopular as ever. And his only chance of staying out of jail is just to keep this thing going. So, so in the law, intent. So if, I, if you drive drunk 100 mile an hour through a school zone and you kill mm -hmm. a child, Right. You're liable to be convicted of murder. Your defense is, look, I didn't intend to. I was negligent. I got drunk. I drove too fast. Nope. That, that, there's a, a level of negligence. And I, you know, get Dean Collin to, to, to clarify my thought that is so negligent, it amounts to intent. BB's negligent was, negligence was so manifest. Sure was. Borderline can be considered to be intent. That, that's how negligent he was. I mean, at Unit 8200, the whole internal stuff he was trying to do, the backdoor deals he was trying to make, that, there's a point to which negligence becomes so manifest, it turns into intent. Yeah. Now, in his mind, I don't think it was there, but boy, I'll tell you, it, it, it it, 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 it's in, in, I see all these billionaires, I just make a, a quick rant and they pissed off at, at Penn or Harvard about some 19 year old Palestinian in the Harvard yard. I don't know, West Philadelphia. And I'm not giving money. I've had enough of this anti-Semitism. Meanwhile, Trump has dinner with Nick Fuentes who calls for the murder of all non-Christian people in Yee or whatever the fucking guy's name is, has dinner with them. But I wasn't going to say anything about that because he's for the carried interest. Or they say there were good people on both sides in Charlottesville. But if, you, if you're one of these billionaire guys, you, that, that doesn't upset you. What upsets you is that, you know, the... People at Penn or Harvard, you know, maybe we can get rid of them because we want to keep carried interest. It doesn't make any sense at all. It makes no sense. Yeah, whatever at mistakes, all. and surely the, the presidents of those uni elite universities made big mistakes. I sure as hell don't want hedge fund and private equity guys running any institutions, be it Harvard they, they or South Dakota State. Understand. If they get their tax cuts, they don't give a shit. Right. I mean, you can feel it right there. How, how do you have a, in the talk, but by the way, Jamie Raskin has posted a, a number of questions for Elise Stefanik that she can't answer about anti-Semitism. And I've, I've I got to look it up, but I was told by a very reliable person. Well, I'm going to look that up right away. You know how yeah. I feel about it. At least yeah. it's one of my favorite. Don't cards. worry about some snot-nosed Harvard kid. You know, let right. Dinner with Nick Fuentes. Right. You know, James, I'll end it with this, or you can have fun. But, but, but we, we've talked about how the, the greatest gift to the Democrats, whatever the data shows, and for the 
uh, even the presidential race, may be those crazy House Republicans. And one of the great assets Democrats have is when they get into this crazy stuff, we have some tremendous people to take them on from Jamie Raskin uh, uh, and um, and Dan. Uh, why am I drawing a blank? Oh, a blank on his last name. Dan Goldman. Dan Goldman, uh, who is just terrific. Um, I mean, I, pardon, excuse me, Dan, I'm sorry. You went to the same school as my kids, and I should never forget your name. And your mom is Susie's a wonderful person. So I apologize for my senior laughs. But we do. We have great people to take the, them on, and, and they are not they are not very good. They're not. They're not. I like, I, I, they're overmatched. Yep. By far. James Coma is a, a, he's a really stupid guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Hunter Biden is showing him up. <laughs> you got to be really stupid. That's for sure. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Now, following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor, Copilot, and our episode show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. Now, to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You also can find other shows that you might enjoy in the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. Remember, please rate this show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning, and we wish every one of you wonderful people out there a very happy new year, and that 2024 will be better than 2023.